I'm going to read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter, and this is God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did, and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would quiet now hearts and minds. Lord, quieten us from the worries that are crowding out our thoughts or maybe just the tiredness of our bodies. Lord, do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. And give us the grace to both discern, to listen, and to believe and obey. Father, bless us, we pray, for we pray these things confidently, because we come to you in the name of our Saviour and Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Whenever somebody becomes a Christian, it is the result of a supernatural act of God. 
because by nature, it's just simply something that none of us would ever choose to do. The Bible says that we are all sinful at heart. Passages like Romans chapter 3 describe not only how wretched we truly are, but how hopeless our fallen condition is. As the Holy Spirit says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. If someone is to become a follower of Jesus, then they must, Jesus says, they must be born again. The sovereign Lord must himself first reach out to us in love to even give us the ability to believe. Even faith itself is a gift from God. Remember that very famous passage in Ephesians chapter 2, which I know is precious and dear to many of you. It is, be, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the, this referring to? It's faith. You see, not only is salvation a gift from God, but the ability to believe and to receive that salvation is also a gift from God. It's all of grace. People can get converted and can be given this gift of grace in all kinds of surprising ways. For instance, I uh, knew a woman who became a Christian through reading the verse in the Bible which says, if your right hand offends, cut it off. She became a Christian through that verse. How do you get converted through that, you might think? Well, she said she knew that her hands caused her to sin. She did many things, wicked things, which she was ashamed of. But she said not only did her hands cause her to sin, but the things that she looked at um, the, with her eyes, the things that she listened to with her ears, and the things that she said with her tongue, she said, they also led me into sin. And she said when she stopped and really thought about it, there wasn't a single part of her body that wasn't in some way or another also engaged and therefore guilty of sin. And so she thought that if she had to cut off every part of her body in her that led her to sin, well, there'd be nothing left. And so she cried out to God for mercy to save her from her wretchedness and she trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection to save her. Pretty good way to be saved, huh? Uh, then there was this vet uh, in my first congregation in Weewall who got converted through the verse in Genesis which says that women will experience pain in childbearing. I thought at first, you know, uh, he might have been being misogynistic or something that, you know, he was against women. But he said, oh, no, no, no. It's because as a, as a vet of something like 35 years, you know, he could never understand why humans alone experience 
pain when delivering their offspring. Every other species, he said, normally didn't experience pain unless it was some complication. But they didn't really experience any pain at all. He said, why was it that only humans experienced that? He said it was strange because if the theory of evolution were true, then surely in those natural processes, that would be the first thing you would want to overcome. I've lost many a shirt through deliveries. As my wife has, you know, twisted and twisted, I had to realise by about child number four, don't wear a good shirt to the delivery room. But when you read that in the Bible, he thought, it must be true. If the Bible has such insight into the uh, fallen human condition, he said, I can trust everything else. And so he he almost immediately went on to trust in Jesus and what he said about himself as the saviour of the world. Probably the most surprising conversion I've ever heard, though, was a lady in my old church back in Sydney. She was a young Buddhist woman who had come to Australia to study from Malaysia. And her mother made her promise when she left home. Her Her mother made her promise that she would never become a Christian. She assured her that she never would. But then um, when she came to Australia, her roommates that she was flooding with were Christians and they invited her to church. They invited her to church actually the very first week that she was there and she accepted And she said on that very first Sunday, she became a Christian because she said she was just so inextricably drawn to Jesus. Even though she said she was in church and even though she knew that she had promised that she would never trust in him, she was in church and she said, Mark, I could do no other. We come this week to Jonah chapter 3. And you know what? We read about the greatest miracle of all in the entire book. Greater than the Lord sending a great storm in chapter 1. Greater than the Lord calming it in an instant when Jonah was thrown overboard. And greater than Jonah being swallowed by a great fish only to vomit him up alive three days later. All of those things are miraculous All of those things are true, but this, what you just read in chapter 3, is without doubt the greatest miracle of all. For as we saw, the Lord converts an entire city through, without doubt, the worst sermon ever preached, which gives me hope. Chapter 2 ended on a wonderful note of hope, didn't it? If you have your Bibles there, uh, turn back and look again at what Jonah says in verse 9. It's one of the greatest confessions of faith in the entire book. Jonah says, But I, with a song of thanksgiving, 
will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's beautiful, isn't it? What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah has literally been rescued from death. Everybody else around him would have seen that Jonah has been resurrected from the grave. People don't get swallowed by great big fish and then get actually regurgitated back alive. He has been miraculously and graciously saved, though, by something more than just death. He's been saved, I think, from God's righteous wrath and judgment. And as a result, he utters this stunningly beautiful confession of faith. Now, you'd expect that Jonah is going to uh, preach a message that is filled with these precious truths uh, arising from his own personal testimony of what's happened over the last three days or so. Truths that come through experiencing the mercy and grace of God yourself. But nope. Jonah gives the Ninevites the bare minimum. It's a sermon which in total is eight words in English but only five words in Hebrew. It's a one-hand sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. It's a summary, an executive summary, you might say, of the message that God had given. Normally, God tells a prophet, these are the words you are to say, in this instance, Jonah is given more the message that I want you to proclaim to them. And Jonah gives them the bare minimum. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for overturned, which Jonah uses, is quite ambiguous. It simply means changed. Forty more days and Nineveh will be changed. It could be negative. It could be positive, depending on the context in which this particular word is used. Nineveh, in other words, could be judged or it could be saved. It could be condemned or it could be converted. No matter what, in 40 days, something's going to happen. Just how it's going to be changed isn't specified. And what we find out in chapter 4 is that Jonah probably would have preferred the latter, that is, in being judged, than actually the former, that is, they might have been saved. But for Jonah, it's a win-win. But notice what Jonah doesn't say. He doesn't mention the name of the Lord. He doesn't even tell them anything about how compassionate God is, His holiness, and how they probably should take this warning really seriously and even urge them to be saved. He doesn't even tell them about his mercy and his power to save. 
as Jonah has experienced firsthand. No, Jonah simply gives them the bare minimum. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Verse 3 tells us, though, that Nineveh was a very important city and that a visit required three days. Now, not only have historians worked out that Nineveh was approximately 50 miles in circumference and it had something like 1,500 watchtowers. So this ancient city was absolutely massive. But once again... The original Hebrew that Jonah is uh, referring to here is somewhat ambiguous. For the expression that it was an exceedingly great city, literally translated means this, it was a city great to God. Most translations treat that expression as what they would call a superlative. But there could also be, I think, an underlying theological point that is being made here, and that is that the people of Nineveh were God's elect. They are people that he had graciously, in his sovereign purposes, chosen to save. It was a city that the Lord had chosen to show his sovereign grace and mercy to. We don't have time to look at it right now, but for a similar kind of expression and idea, just see what the Lord says to Paul in a vision. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. Acts 18, 9 to 10. And you'll see the Lord says the same thing to Paul, to not give up the preaching of the gospel because he has many people in this city. Why should you not give up sharing the gospel? Because it doesn't depend on you. Because God has many people in this city. I have to say this, because some people doubt God's sovereignty. Do you know, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Because it doesn't depend on you. But as soon as Jonah starts preaching on the very first day of this exceedingly great city to God, he gets this absolutely stunning response. The king and then the entire city of Nineveh are immediately cut to the heart and they all repent from the least to the greatest. Isn't that a miracle? Even the cattle are covered in sackcloth and ashes as a sign of their spiritual sadness and remorse. Everybody repents. Now, just imagine, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Just imagine if the Premier of Tasmania issued a a similar public decree as the King of Nineveh did. Everyone was to give up their sinful ways in Hobart and was commanded to go to church. Hobart's a lot lesser city, even numerically, than Nineveh was. Nineveh was like 50 miles in circumference. Even if we include the eastern shore and the western shore and north and down to Margate, well, my son Ben was late for, well, uni this this week. He was a week early. So he was actually early 
right? He got there a week early. And he had to go from Sandy Bay into, into, the, into Hobart Central to meet Angie so that he could give it, get a lift home. It took him an hour and a half walking. Yeah, we breed them tough. Yeah. <laughs> but imagine if, if the Premier of, of Tasmania did a similar sort of public decree as what he's done here. Seek the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And yet that's precisely what happened. God in his sovereignty changed everybody's hearts. Not only that, but it was in response to, without doubt, the worst sermon ever preached. Doesn't that give you enormous encouragement when it comes to being a witness for the gospel? You know, lots of people say to me, oh, I'm just not very good at sharing the gospel. I reckon there's not a person here that couldn't share the gospel better than Jonah. There's not... Not one person here that couldn't do a better job. A lot of people feel intimidated when it comes to sharing their faith and they say they don't have what it takes. And actually, they're right. None of us has the power or the wisdom to make somebody a Christian because, as I said before, it totally depends on God. Even if you could perform a miracle for them, like some people require, that doesn't mean that they would believe. Truly. Let me give you an example. There's a guy in my congregation in Sydney who was uh, quite a gifted evangelist and he was married to a doctor. Uh, He was a very effective, he was really effective in talking to people about Jesus and yet he had this severe medical condition himself which meant that his heart went down to a capacity of, I kid you not, I checked this with him this week, a capacity of 10%. At one particular point, actually there were many points, but at this one particular point, it looked very, very likely he was going to die. And so he asked one of his close friends that he'd been sharing the gospel with, What would it take for him to believe? This friend was visiting him as, you know, he's basically on his deathbed. And he said, you know what? He said, if the Lord healed him of his heart problem, I would definitely believe. It was a really big call to make because things were looking quite dire. But as you might have already guessed, my friend improved. And a year later, he was almost, almost fully recovered at 57% capacity what do you think was the response of his mate though is he now a christian no he said to this guy james i know i promised that i would start reading the bible and i'd believe but i just can't i just can't i even recognize that your healing is from the hand of god but i just don't want to believe That's exactly how it is with all of us by nature. None of us want to believe. I remember John Chapman, probably Australia's greatest evangelist in the last hundred years, I think. 
saying to a man that he was sharing the gospel with, you cannot believe unless God first gives you the ability to believe. And he said, that's not true. I could believe any time I like. And Chapo said, then go on, brother, give us a demo. He goes, I don't want to believe. He goes, want to believe. He goes, I can't. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't want to. And he goes, exactly, because unless God humbles your heart, you won't. None of us want to be saved until the Holy Spirit first miraculously works within us. And if you hear God speaking to you through his word this morning, do you see how blessed you truly are? That you would even want to believe is a sign of his grace. The one whom the Lord Jesus refers to in John 16 as the counsellor, who alone convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And as such, we can have confidence in telling others about Jesus because it doesn't depend on us, but God. Because if God can use the preaching of Jonah, friends, to such a great effect then he can definitely use you and me. For example, have you ever heard how the great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted? Many people probably have. He himself described it like this. He said, I'll quote, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. He was 15 at this point. He said, when I could go no further, I turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister did not come that morning, snowed up, I guess. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged, Spurgeon said, to stick to his text for the simple reason he had nothing else to say. The text was this, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me, all all ye, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon said he did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There I was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. Apparently the preacher noticed the young Spurgeon sitting up in the gallery and he pointed to him and he said, young man, you look very miserable and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ Look, look, look. You see, you don't need to be eloquent or anything like that. As you can see on the diagram on this week's corner post, it's as easy really as ABC. That is A, admit that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus Christ is the saviour. And C, commit your life to following him. A, B, C. But just as the Ninevites turned from the sin which was most characteristic of them, that is their violence, so too we, 
friends should turn away from our specific sins. Whether it be sexual immorality, conceitedness, selfishness, lack of love for our Christian brothers and sisters, laziness, or materialism. Whatever it may be, we must repent. As Jesus says in John 10, I am the gate. Whoever whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come, says Jesus, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Oh, Lord and Heavenly Father, how good it has been to meet together today as your people and to sit at your feet and to listen to your Holy Spirit speak to us through your word. Lord, we are a sinful people and we pray that you give us the grace to believe and to obey to turn from our wickedness, to turn from our violence, to turn from our sin and to trust in your atonement for us on the cross and by your spirit that you would fill us, strengthen us and renew us to walk in newness of life. Lord, as we think of the things that we are rightly guilty of and indeed that you convict us of, May we not dwell in our guilt, but may we rest in your forgiveness. The assurance that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just, that you will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Empower us by your spirit that we would walk in your righteous paths, that we would know life and life to the full. Lord, finally, we pray that we wouldn't be ashamed. We wouldn't be ashamed of you or your words, but that in every context that we are given as we go from here, in the multiplicity of contexts which we are at work, at home, with our relatives, that we would simply tell them in love the good news about Jesus and leave the results to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the great privilege of seeing people converted and coming to know you like Jonah did. And Father, we commit all of this into your hands, trusting you for all of the results. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.